Hi there. Welcome into Downtown the Podcast. It is episode 59. The podcast brought to you each week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. I'm Rich Kimball, joined by Carrie Haskell. The program originates from the Zone Radio Studios on Broadway. Bangor, Maine, the other Broadway, as we like to call it here. It's where we host our daily show downtown every weekday afternoon from 4 to 6 Eastern Time on WZON, WKIT, HD3, streaming audio at downtownwithrichkimball.com. Two terrific guests this week who have accomplished a lot in their careers on television, uh, books, on stage, you name it, they have done it. Coming up a little later, Sally Struthers, who of course made her mark in the iconic All in the Family in the 1970s, went on to play that role in a spinoff to the Gilmore Girls, stage, motion pictures, still going strong, and uh, right here in the state of Maine, performing in 42nd Street at Ogunquit Playhouse. A very fun conversation coming up with her in the second half of the podcast. But in the first half this week, a comedy legend. And I don't throw that term around loosely, Carrie, but my gosh, when you look at the body of work for Alan Zweibel, you got to put him on that Mount Rushmore, I think, of second half of the 20th century comedy creators. Yeah, any comedian that you can think of from the 1970s on, he's worked with. He's he's written for, he's consulted with something. He his hands are in so many <laughs> iconic shows of the last four decades. Yeah, if you just looked at the TV work alone, original writer, first five years of Saturday Night Live, creating unbelievably memorable characters and sketches with Gilda Radner and John Belushi. On to its Gary Shandling show, Curb Your Enthusiasm, where he served as a consultant to Larry David and appeared in an episode, and a funny story about that, coming up in a conversation as well. But then you don't even take into consideration his stage work, helping write Broadway shows for Billy Crystal and Martin Short. His work as a writer, he's won the Thurber Prize for American Humor. He's worked with Dave Barry, and on and on the list goes. So, He's done it all and not stopping yet. What do you tell us? He's got two new books coming out in the next six to 12 months. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. The, the content that he is still creating, uh, working on a new adaption of his Gilda Radna play. It, it's amazing. We're talking about Alan Zweibel and, uh, let's give a listen to our great conversation with him, uh, starting with one of the best stories you'll hear about Simon and Garfunkel's The Boxer. We are thrilled to be joined this afternoon by legendary writer Alan Zweibel. Alan, thanks for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, just made me laugh with the, when I heard The Boxer. <laughs> well, we've teed that up out of the box. C- can you tell that story, please? Because I-, I just love it. Well, you know, it's, it, it harkens back to when I was in college. This is in the early seventies. I had a, uh, I took a poetry writing class and, um, uh, I was failing. I, I was failing. And had I failed it, I would have uh, failed out of college and the Vietnam war was raging. And, uh, God knows what, where I would have ended up if I would have ended up in the war. So, um, as a last ditch effort, um, we had a 92 year old teacher, 
And uh, <laughs> as a last-ditch effort to avoid getting an F on a Friday, where we handed in our poetry journals, I handed in the uh, lyrics to Paul Simon's uh, song, The Boxer, uh, thinking that a 92-year-old woman you know, wouldn't recognize it. And come Monday, uh, I was right. She didn't recognize it. But the bad news was uh, she was so impressed by it that um, she wanted me to come up and read it, my poem, to the rest <laughs> of the class. <laughs> and I'm begging off and I'm saying, no, no, no. You know, I, I really don't like the speaking in front of people. I'm thrilled you like my poem. And she just, you know, she prevailed on me. And uh, I went up in front of the class and I started reading it. And when I got to the point where um, when I left my home and my family, I was no more than a boy in the company of strangers and the quiet of the railway station running scared, laying low, seeking out the poorer quarters where the ragged people go, looking for the places only they would know. The whole class started singing, lie, 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 <laughs> lie, 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 lie. It was, it was oh, God. <laughs> but... You know, but the 92-year-old teacher, you know, she just looked at the class and says, yeah, it's inspiring, isn't it? <laughs> so uh, I got away with it. <laughs> I got an A. And I became friends with Paul Simon years later. And uh, when he saw me, re- that was actually from a book that I had written called The Other Showman. You mentioned it in your intro. And I read from it on The Letterman Show. Mm. Uh, and the whole audience started singing Lila La Lai. <laughs> Paul Simon emailed me the next day <laughs> mentioning something about how sales of the box that has shot up, shot up. <laughs> I read from the, you know, on, on the Letterman show. So it's really been, that, that's really been a fun ride. That one thing that I wrote, it was in, like I said, it was in a novel and, um, I, I read from it on a show and it's been, um, you know, I do my speaking engagements. Uh, I tell that story and it's, boy, I've got a lot of miles out of that. <laughs> uh, you've also got a great story of how you became a comedy writer. Well, you mean at the very, very beginning? Yes, um, yes. Well, well, that was really um, not my choice. That was uh, that was a decision made for me by every law school in the United States. <laughs> when I was in college, you know, uh, once again, this is late 60s, early 70s, and um, there was a war, and people wanted to, kids wanted to extend their uh, education by going to law school, medical school, professional school. And um, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer, but uh, once uh, all, uh, every law school in the United States, so uh, uh, my law board scores, they um, they probably got together and said, no, no, no this, this is silly, <laughs> you know. So, uh, you know, it, so I ended up writing jokes, you know, which is really what I wanted to do. But back then, especially back then, now you've got, all these film schools and you've got UCB and you've got all these places where people, kids can go to start training, you know, for a career in comedy, you know, and paying their dues that way. Back then there really wasn't, um, there was no prescribed course of action. So, you know, I figured I'll okay, be able to become a lawyer. So I have something to fall back on. I had no idea what to do. So uh, I ended up writing jokes for comedians in the, uh, in the Catskill Mountains, there used to be all these hotels up in the uh, Catskill Mountain region in New York that had these huge uh, nightclubs in it. And that's where show business, uh, that was the breeding ground back in the 50s and the 60s. Uh, 
Alan King and Dean Martin mm. and Jerry Lewis, and all of them started there. But by the time I got there, um, in the early 70s, uh, I was left with the guys <laughs> who were never going to make it. All the guys all the guys who were really good went on to have TV shows and movie careers, and I was left with all these other guys who were really nice, really nice men and very competent comedians, but really weren't uh, distinct in their personalities. You know, if a joke did work for one guy, I gave it to another. You know, there was nothing specific about their persona, you know. Uh, years later, when I wrote for people like... Uh, well, let's say Rodney Dangerfield, you know, it was easier because Rodney used to say, I don't get no respect. So it was easy to have him say, you know, even as an infant, my mother wouldn't breastfeed me. She <laughs> said she liked me as a friend. You know, that was easier. So, <laughs> so 1975, yeah, you're a young guy, early 20s, and uh, at a crossroads of sorts, a brand new show that's getting started by Lauren Michaels. But the other opportunity you had was to write oh, was to yeah. write for Hollywood Squares, right? For Paul Lind? Well, it was really, and at the time, it sounds absurd <laughs> now that we're talking about it, you know, you know, some 44 years later. But at the time, you know, Hollywood Squares was going into its ninth season. It was uh, a network show. It was in California where the whole industry was, you know, so it was higher pay scales, really great exposure, and each one of the squares had a star in it, all of whom had their own variety shows or Las Vegas acts. So it would have been, so I thought, so the thinking was, I should say, well, okay, do that, you know, and uh, become chummy with one or two of the people who have their own TV shows, and I'll ask you to come right for it. Where on the other hand, there was this, Saturday Night Live thing. It was going to be on at 11.30 to 1 on Saturday nights, which was an ungodly hour, okay? Um, uh, East Coast, late night, which meant it was a much lower pay scale. Who the hell is John Belushi? Who's Gilda Radner? You know, so it was um, for, for maybe 12 seconds, I said, gee, which one should I choose? No, 12 seconds is an exaggeration. <laughs> I'd say for a half a second. But, you know, as luck would have it, you know, I was struggling. I was living home with my parents. I was writing jokes. I was working at a delicatessen uh, in Queens, New York, you know, to supplement this great living I was making as a writer. And, you know, I go, all right, well, what, what should I do? And I said, gee, if I'm going to uh, fail, I want to at least fail doing something I enjoy. It seemed like the insens- sensibility that I, you know, it was my uh, peer group age-wise. So, um yeah, that's what I did. We're talking Thank with God. Alan Zweibel here on Downtown. On your first day on the job, a meeting that in many ways changed your life when you met Gilda Radner. Well, yeah, I was. Uh, I went upstairs to Lauren's office, and I um, uh, before the meeting started, I looked around, and I saw Belushi and Aykroyd and Franken and uh, Lorraine Newman, and uh, they were all trained, you know, Second City or the Groundlings, you know, it was um, improv people, you know, mm. and it was a kind of humor that I had not been exposed to. I may not have even have heard, seriously, at that point of Second City. So I saw them playing around in Lauren's office and just creating stuff right in front of me on their feet, and they were hilarious. And I was this, you know, big Jewish joke writer from Long <laughs> Island, so uh, I got a little intimidated. I went behind uh, Hid, 
behind a potted plant that Lauren had in his office. And the meeting started, and at one point, early into the meeting, I heard a girl's voice say, can you help me be a parakeet? And I parted the leaves, and I saw Gilda. And um, I said, what? And she said, yeah, I think it would be really funny if I stood on a perch and scrunched up my face like a parakeet, but I, I need a writer to help me figure out what the parakeet should say. Can, are you a good parakeet writer? I have no idea what any of that meant, okay? But I, at least somebody was talking to me, and I went, yeah, yeah, I'm a great parakeet writer. And um, she, she said, look, is there any room behind the plant? I looked, and I said, yeah, why? She said, well, um, yeah, I'm a little nervous. It's my first TV show, too. And so I scooched over, and she came, and that's where I met my buddy, uh, Gilda, squatting behind the plant. You created with her Emily Latella, Roseanne, Rosanna, Dana. What was the dynamic? Did you write for specific performers? Did they ask to work with you? How did that whole thing develop? You can write for and with anybody that you want. So during the five years uh, I was there, I wrote with Franken. I wrote with Dan Aykroyd. I wrote for Dan Aykroyd. I wrote for a week when I wrote Weekend Update, which is something that I had a, a big hand in all five years. That meant I wrote for Chevy and Jane Curtin and Bill Murray. I, you know, and the combinations of writers and actors was just, you know, the permutations were huge. You know, so uh, if you had an idea that you thought you had a personal vision about, well, then you wrote it. But if I called Gild into my office and say, listen, I think it would be a great idea if you played Howdy Doody's wife, Debbie Doody, and, she'll, and she just started jumping around in my <laughs> office like she was hanging from uh, strings, you know, and we'd write together, you know. And uh, I wrote the Samurais for John Belushi, which was uh, actually another writer named Tom Schiller had uh, created. He wrote Samurai Hotel. That was the first one. But then Lauren came up to me subsequent to that, and Lauren knew that I worked in a delicatessen before I got the job at SNL. He said, you worked in a deli, right? <laughs> I said, yeah. He said, uh, can you write Samurai Deli? And once again, I said, oh, you bet. When he walked away, I had no idea what the hell I was doing. But, you know, so like you can write with anyone, for anyone, and um, it, it was a lot of fun that way. You got to flex different muscles depending upon uh, the sensibilities of the people around you. The show was so different, and nobody knew what to expect. I think it replaced Carson reruns on That's Saturday night. Right. And there had yeah. been the other, was it Saturday night with Howard Cosell on ABC that, that preceded the show? So, And even the first couple of episodes, I remember being there watching 1975. George Carlin did multiple monologues on that first show. There wasn't a lot of time early on to get sketches onto the air. Well, when you think about the very, very first show, you had George Carlin, who did a lot of monologues, right? Then um, you also had <clears throat> Andy Kaufman, right, right, who did a, a stand-up back. I think he might have done Mighty Mouse. I'm not sure. And then Valerie Bromfield mm. um, uh, got up, and she did a monologue. Billy Crystal, my buddy Billy, uh, was supposed to be on that show, but because they were so overcrowded, they want to um, they wanted to cut him down from like seven minutes to two and a half or something. You know, I got the numbers a little bit wrong, but it was a dramatic uh, editing job they wanted him to do. So he didn't do the first show. But on that first show, in addition to those stand-up comedians, you also had Janice Ian, uh, was a singer, and Billy Preston was a singer. So you had all these individual acts. 
So like the first weekend update may have been three and a half minutes long. Wow. You know, the show hasn't, it didn't find its form yet. You know, it, 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 it took a couple. It took, you know, Lily Tomlin came and did the sixth show. You know, uh, Rob Reiner did the third show. It started taking a little bit of form, and uh, the sketches started getting a little bit longer. And we realized that, um, Alon realized that he didn't need all these individual acts. So, it, you know, it ultimately it got pared down, and it became the form that it is now, and it has been for 45 years, you know? The friendship that you had with Gilda would last for the rest of her life. You, you wrote the wonderful Bunny Bunny about uh, the the sort of love story. It was well, it was a one sided love affair, and yet a very <laughs> <laughs> a very deep friendship, right? <laughs> yeah, it was. Look, I, I wanted it to be a boy girl thing, and as far as she was concerned, it was just a coincidence that she was a girl and I was a boy. <laughs> <laughs> that, that didn't play any part into the relationship. But yeah, you know, we wrote a lot of things together for the five years I was there. In addition to those characters you mentioned, you know, we just um, call each other in the middle of the night and would say what if or go to mostly over dinner. But that was the same. Uh, and then when the show ended for us, we left in 1980. You know, she eventually moved to California and I opted to stay in New York. So our uh, friendship, you know, there was no emails. And then, you know, she was doing mm-hmm. movies, and the three-hour time difference became a factor. So it, it, it diminished a little bit in terms of the frequency. But when I went out to California to do a pilot for a series called It's Gary Shandling Show, that put me out in California, where she lived now. And um, we resuscitated or jump-started our platonic friendship uh, when you know I did It's Gary Shandling Show, and I brought my family out when... Uh, the show became very successful, and um, you know it, it, that show was the last show that Gilda made a television right. on. You yeah. know, so uh, you know, it, yeah, yeah. So it did last. Well, let's see, from seventy-five, and she passed away in eighty-nine. It was fourteen years. The documentary that came out last fall, Love Gilda, was so wonderful, and uh, I understand that that some of the footage in that. It was essentially your home movies, uh, Gilda <laughs> and Gene Wilder singing "Happy Birthday" to your son. It was a, it was amazing. Yeah, my wife and I were listed as executive producers on it, and part of our uh, you know duties, if you will, was to furnish them with memorabilia, you know, photos and uh, you know footage. And, and it was what was really great was it opened the Tribeca Film Festival here in New York. So. Uh, we have three children who are now in their 30s, and they came. Um, uh, and so the five of us, actually the seven of us, two of them are married, so their spouses were there. But the five of us were watching the um, Love Gilda, and you'd hear our kids go, oh, I remember that Seder. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's when Gilda sang to us at the thing. Yeah, so it was a lot of home movies um, uh, uh, that we saw there. So uh, what I liked about them using it, whether it would be mine or any of the other ones that were in that documentary, was um, you, you got Gilda, um, her personal life. You, you got her at home. You got her, you know, uh, who she, you know, was when she wasn't wearing a funny wig or doing a, a crazy dialogue, you know, and um, it really personalized her very, very nicely. Uh, is Bunny Bunny coming back to the stage sometime soon? Uh, well, you know, there's a couple of um, producers who want to do it, so I'm rewriting it and tweaking it with every hope that uh, maybe it will. 
you know, I, I wrote it as a book um, in 1993 or four to do just for closure. My wife, Robin, said to me, you know, you should write something about you and Gilda. And I resisted. And she said, look, uh, your best friend died. You, you, you haven't cried yet. So what I did was for the book, I just recreated our relationship. You know, where did we meet? Oh, yeah, behind that potted plant. And I wrote down, I recreated every scene I could remember over the 14 years, ending with uh, a eulogy that I gave at her memorial. And then uh, I thought, uh, okay, closure's over. Okay, and then uh, I made it into a play. So I opened the same wound again. And now it's here it is again. And love, but you want to know something? It's... Um, it's a double-edged sword. As a writer, you go, gee, how many times can I do the same thing? But as a human being, you know, to go back and visit somebody that you really cared about and then so much to you and your family, um, it's sort of nice, you know. So um, we're going to try, and, you know, let's see what happens. You mentioned it's Gary Shandling's show. So far ahead of its time, such a unique show. Is it safe to say that Gary Shandling was a complex guy to work with? Oh, God, was he ever. He was a complex guy to work with. Um, he was um, uh, he was a good friend. But, um, yeah, he was, um, and I mean this in a nice way, he was, he was, he was a genius, uh, but his, I think he was a little tortured by it. Mm. You know what I mean? So he did have his demons. And yeah, you had to do a certain, you know, Judd Apatow did that wonderful two-part um, series. Oh, uh, that was great. The special, yeah. yeah. Well, it's the Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling. So as you saw me and everybody else saying it, that there was a complexity there where, um, you know, his work was his life. And for those people who had uh, wives, children, and uh, other things, uh, there was a, a competition that he felt, and um, that being said, you know, when he passed away, I guess it was over three years ago now, um, I was just saying to my wife the other day, I miss Gary. There was a profound uh, influence and impact that he made on all of us. You know, it's funny, um, a couple of months ago, once again at the Tribeca Film Festival uh, here in New York, I saw Sarah Silverman in conversation with uh, a great stand-up comedian named Mike Birbiglia. Oh, love and, Mike. He's uh, been on our show. Oh, oh, he's, he's the best. He's really great. His one-man shows are terrific, and he's in billions. He's really a monster talent. And I'm sitting there, and I'm watching the two of them, and some of the things that Sarah was saying when I wrote her the next day to tell her how much I enjoyed her, uh, I said, you know, uh, I cited a thing or two where she uh, alluded to uh, f- sort of philosophies that Gary had. You know, it's about the work. It's not about, you know, and, 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 and uh, the the Zen part of uh, of writing, writing from the core and, and, and whatever. And I, I, I mentioned that to her, and when she wrote back, she said he's part of my every molecule, mm. and uh, he still inspires me. And I know a lot of us feel that way about certain people. You know, in every aspect of all of our lives, you have people who made impact. And Gary, um, Gary still lingers. I, I know that when I write, uh, you know, I'll go, all right, what would Gary do? What would Gary say? What would Gary think? You know, it's not 
really conscious, but every so often I'm aware, oh, yeah, I know I'm doing it. I, I was so moved. I watched that documentary, all four hours of it, several times. I was so taken with his spirituality that I didn't know much about. And, and the fact that he worked so hard in his last several years to to try and help the young people along the way and in, without credit, reaching out and, and punching up scripts and looking at material, I, I found that so powerful. Well, you know, he had a now legendary a basketball game every Sunday. Right. He had a court, and I played in that game when we lived in L.A. And um, let's say the game was called uh, for uh, noon, okay? Uh, I'd get there 5 to 12, but there were guys, younger writers who were there, had been there since 10. And let's say we leave at 2. But the younger writers were still there. They didn't stay. They stayed for dinner. And what Gary did was um, he had these... Uh, I wouldn't say disciples, but they had devotees. Uh, he was a mentor to so many people. Uh, there's a lot of people that will tell you that Gary taught them how to write. Gary gave them their start. Um, Gary uh, paid for uh, something because they didn't have insurance. And I, it's quite frankly, I didn't know some of those things until I saw <laughs> Judd's um, documentary. You know, and then I would mm. speak to Kevin Nealon or Bob Saget, people who were closer to Gary than myself, and they went, "Oh yeah," you know. So, um, you know, he was uh, he, he was a very spiritual guy. He, uh, when I first met him, he was into crystals and things like that before anybody was. He had a cabin up in Big Bear where I where he used to go and and then come back with tons of ideas for the show. It, it, it was like a retreat uh, where you go on hikes. And um, he, uh, when he passed, uh, all of us felt that um, if there is a life after this, uh, he was certainly ready for it because he was uh, he was in touch with something else that was otherworldly. Mm -hmm. I want to uh, just for a moment talk about curb your enthusiasm. Uh, we had uh, the great character actor Paul Dooley on a few weeks ago who played. Larry David's uh, father-in-law, and he was talking about uh, what what he would get for material going into a scene and essentially it was it was just a setup what was the writing like on that with so much of it being improvised did the improvisation lead to what you put in scripts well you know look i i was i was called a consulting producer for a couple of years and in fact what that was is i shared offices with larry he would come in lie on my couch say, what if, or this is what I'm thinking. I'd throw my two cents in, uh, and then he would leave, and then he would either write an outline or embellish the outline he already had. I was in one of the episodes, and it was um, uh, it was similar to what I just told you. What it was is um, they told me for the first scene, I was in three scenes, okay, uh, and this is when Larry was shooting. This is a few years ago now. He was shooting in New York. And I live in New York. So he put me in an episode. He gave me a name. He called me Duckstein. And, <laughs> okay, he said, okay, you're going to be sitting in a, a Japanese restaurant. I'm Larry. Larry's talking, right? <laughs> I'm going to walk in. You're going to recognize me from L.A. And you're going to ask me that since we're both on the same coast, why don't we go for lunch? <laughs> okay, that's all I knew. 
<laughs> so I went up and I greeted him and uh, I, you know, I, I, I proposed that you want lunch. And Larry, you can tell from the way he was behaving towards Duxton, wanted nothing to do with me, okay? <laughs> and I said, look, why don't we have lunch? He said, why should we have lunch? I said, because we never have a chance to do it in L.A., we're both in New York. Let's do it. He says, what's the difference? I said, because you should get to know me. He goes, I don't want to know you. I don't want to have lunch with you. I said, that's because we, we never have a chance to spend time together. I don't want to spend time together. So basically, I'm begging him to have lunch, using the fact that we're on the same side of the country as an excuse. Okay. And he brushes me entirely. All right. So that's scene one. Scene two, because I, I'm not having lunch with Larry, all I knew is uh, they told me is that you'll be having, uh, you'll be eating a pastrami sandwich by yourself, and you're going to choke, okay? And there's nobody around to save you <laughs> because, you're not eat, because you're not eating with Larry, okay? <laughs> All right. So we go to Central Park in the middle of August at like ten in the morning. It's a thousand degrees out. I'm eating pastrami. I'm taking bites of pastrami, you know, and there's take after take after take. I'm giving myself the Heimlich. They say, don't give yourself the Heimlich. No, okay, give yourself the Heimlich. All right. And uh, I've never eaten so much pastrami at 10 o'clock in August <laughs> and outside in my life. When that was over with, the third scene was, okay, you're going to be in the hospital. Larry's going to come visit you. All right. Because he feels guilty because you started choking because he wasn't there to have lunch with you and give you the Heimlich. And I'm now in a hospital bed, and we end up having lunch, eating hospital food together. Okay? So that was the run that I had. But I only knew the bullet point. So everything else was ad-lib. And you do it over and over again, and they'll navigate you more of that, less of that. But, um, you know, for the, oh, Maybe all told, I was, let's say, on the show, six minutes of me. There must have been 40 minutes that we shot, you know. And, and um, I didn't see it until it was on the air. And I had forgotten most of what I said, you know. So it was fun. So it, it, Paul Dooley is absolutely right. It's um, You get people who are good on their feet. You look at Susie Espen. You look at, you know. Uh, now the late, unfortunately, Bob Einstein. You look at those people and what they're capable of doing. Ted Danson. They, they. Um, Larry tells them, okay, uh, when we get on the set, um, say whatever you want, but hit these points because that's our plot. Alan Zweibel, uh, so much more I wanted to ask you about. We haven't talked about books, haven't talked about you trying to pick up a woman at the Anne Frank house. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I hope hope we can get you back on and, and talk more because you've uh, had such an interesting life and still uh, producing tremendous works with two books out in the last year, right? Well, I've got two books coming out this coming year. Uh, yeah, I had two books in the last year. This coming year, I have two books. Uh, one that I've written with um, Dave Barry, uh, the great Dave Barry, and uh, Adam Mansback. And if you don't know his name, gee, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this word on, on, on your radio. Uh, yes, of course. You can. <laughs> uh, it, uh, Adam Mansback wrote a children's book a couple of oh, years ago. I know that, like yes. A, yeah. Am I allowed to say the title of the book? Um, uh, can you bleep yourself on that one word? <laughs> okay. Go to blank. Go to uh, blank. Go to Asleep, okay? <laughs> and uh, the three of us uh, wrote a book that's coming out in September called A Field Guide to the Jewish People, <laughs> who they are, where to find them, what to feed them, you know, what do they have against for the, the The subtitle is like a page long, 
And then uh, next um, April, I have a cultural memoir, uh, which is very much about my career, which is called Laugh Lines, 40 Years Trying to Make Funny People Funnier. And uh, that uh, I take you through the Catskills in SNL and it's Gary Shaling show and Broadway when I uh, helped my friend Billy Crystal write mm. 700 Sundays and, 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 and my, a lot of my collaborations. So it's a coach drama, like a tour guide. So that comes out next April. Well, excellent. Well, I hope we can get you back on when uh, one of the books I comes up. It's been a real treat, Alan. Thank you so much for making time for us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Alan Zweibel, great conversation with him here on Downtown the Podcast. We'll take a break. A quick word from our friends at Cross Insurance. When we come back, Sally Struthers chats with us. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. If you're out on the road, feeling lonely and so cold, all you have to do is call my name and I'll be there on the next train. Our next guest on the podcast has appeared in iconic television shows like, of course, All in the Family, playing the role of Gloria Bunker Stivic. Onto her spin-off series, Gloria, and then several seasons on the Gilmore Girls. She's appeared in motion pictures like Five Easy Pieces and has performed on stages from Broadway all around the country, including a current run here in Maine at the Ogunquit Playhouse in 42nd Street. We had a great time talking with actress Sally Struthers. Sally, welcome back to Maine. Thank you. I'm not quite there yet, Rich Kimball. I'm in New York rehearsing 42nd Street, and I will get up to Maine on Saturday, and then we'll start pecking the show on Sunday night at the theater, and then our first audience comes in on Wednesday, June 19th, and we have two, three previews, and then the next show they call opening night. Yeah. Well, this has really become for you your second home. I know it's been more than a decade. How long have you been coming here to Maine to perform? Uh, 17 years in a row, not missing a single year, and a couple of years doing two shows in one year. So I've done 19 or 20 shows in 17 years at the Ogunquit Playhouse. What is it that that keeps you coming back to Maine and specifically to Ogunquit? It must be the water. (laughs) That's it, yeah. What, What keeps me coming back? Can I be literal with you? Yes. They keep asking me. That's always a good thing when they keep asking, right? Yeah, the the, the year they don't ask anymore is going to be really <laughs> awkward for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I know you like working with the people there. Specifically, I'm told that uh, you found a unique way to honor the artistic director there, Brad Kenny. Yes, his full name is Bradford T. Kenny. And Bradford T. Kenny, when he arrived at the Playhouse 12 years ago, became a dear friend of mine, so much so that when I'm not working, I have stayed with him. He has come to my house probably six, seven times and stayed with me in Los Angeles. Um, but my two Scotty dogs, Bob and Bananas, passed away 
seven years ago, quite close to one another in time. And it was doubly heartbreaking. And the pain was so severe that I got to that point that I thought I'll never, ever have another dog again. I'd already owned, uh, you don't own an animal, you share a life with an animal. But um, I'd had in my life about nine dogs by then. And those two passing away so quickly, and one of them so horribly, I won't even say what happened, mm. that uh, I went a full year without a dog. And then I was in Ogunquit five years ago doing a show, doing Witches of Eastwick. I'm walking down the street, and a woman was coming toward me with two Scotty dogs. And I fell to my knees in the street and was rolling around and playing with them and laughing. And I swear that woman could hear my heart pop open. I think it made a loud noise. <laughs> and I got my cell phone out, and I called Brad Kenny, and I said, Brad, Brad, you're two dogs, you're two terriers. Didn't you say you got them from a rescue group somewhere here in New England? He said, yes, the New England Terrier Rescue I said, well, could you call him and tell him I want a dog and see if they have any dogs? So I kept having to push him because he was busy mounting another show, and it was crazy time. And finally he called, and he called me back. He said, they just got a shipment on a truck of 60 dogs from the Midwest. So I will drive you down there on your day off, and we'll look at all the dogs, and hopefully you'll find one you want to make your own. And it still took another week or more for him to get me down. When I walked in, there was one dog. And I thought, well, I guess this is good, and I don't have any trouble (laughs) deciding. I guess this dog is going to be my dog. And it's a cute little wheaten-haired, very very platinum-blonde-haired Karen Terrier, which is one of the three breeds of terriers that come from Scotland. There's the Scottish Terrier, the West Highland Terrier, which people call the Westies, and the Karen Terrier. <laughs> and uh, driving home with Brad in the car, I said, would you mind if I named him after you? Because <laughs> you're the reason I have him. So he became little Bradford T. Kenny. And I got home to Los Angeles after Witches of Eastwick closed and went walking out of my front gate down the street. My neighbor was coming up the street with her dog, Mary. And Mary said, oh, Sally, did you, is this your dog? And I said, yeah. She said, oh, what is it? I said, it's the Karen Carrier. Is it a boy or a girl? It's a boy. What's your name? And I said, Bradford T. Kenny. <laughs> and she said, oh, um, what does the T stand for? And I had never asked Brad Kenny what his middle name was. So I said, uh, Carrier. Terrier Kenny. (laughs) I love it. That is a great story. Yeah. We're talking to Sally Struthers here on Downtown. She's coming back to Maine very soon. 42nd Street at the Ogunquit Playhouse opens on the 19th of June. There are a few plays out there in the canon of American musicals that are just more fun, more energetic than the singing and dancing that takes place in this show. That's true. And I'm found that out this last week of rehearsal. (laughs) I have to admit, as I did to our beloved, renowned, award-winning director of this piece, the famous choreographer, director that put this together in the first place, Randy Skinner, I took him aside and I said, you're going to have to be patient with me because I have never seen 42nd Street. I know there's a film of it out there somewhere, and I know it's been done on stages across America. I've never seen it. So when I was asked to play Maggie Jones, I I don't even know what that character's about. So help! (laughs) Of course you don't rehearse in order. 
you rehearse all cattywampus. You know, the dancers go downstairs mm. another floor to a bigger room, and they're learning dances. And you're upstairs doing scene work, but somebody can't get here till the afternoon, so you jump ahead to scenes in Act 2, and then you go to a scene in Act 1. And by the end of the week, you've not rehearsed anything. In order. I still don't know what the play is about, but maybe this week I'll learn. Oh, I'm sure. But all I know is it's a lot of fun, and there's 29 people in the cast, which is a very large cast. And and 20 of them, at least, are, are tap dancing their feet off. And it's very um, uplifting and happy and crazy and energetic. And so like all the 1930s movies that you saw, you know, with, from Busby Berkeley to Jimmy Cagney. It's, and I'm, of course, I, I'm sure I'm not the first actress who's playing Maggie Jones completely stealing my persona from Ethel Merman. But that's not a bad place to steal from. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, nice and loud and brassy. That's it. Uh, you, you've worked with some great ensembles on stage through the years, but also uh, in, in your television roles. And we played the theme from the Gilmore Girls uh, coming into the segment here. How, how much fun was it to work with that group and, and in many ways to be a role model to a lot of them? You know, I liken it to getting the brass ring again the second time. You know, how many people in their lives ever get the brass ring at all, let alone once? And, of course, it was a brass ring I couldn't even really grab onto. It was so big, which we call all in the family. And, uh, you know, well-meaning friends and strangers said to me after those years, well, it's kind of a shame that you got your fame so early in your career because it's going to be all downhill from here. (laughs) And, uh I think when Gilmore Girls came along, I was riding a carousel and there was that brass ring again. And I feel that that show was as well written and as enjoyed by its fans as All in the Family was. It was an honor to be on that for seven years and then to do the reboot that they did like eight years after the fact when they shot those four 90-minute movies to air on Netflix. We were talking uh, two or three weeks ago with uh, a writer who had tracked down Bob Rafelson and did a piece uh, on him. Is he still alive? He is. He's like, well, and that was the whole piece that, is that someone had reported he was dead. He reached out to Esquire and said, I'm not dead yet, but don't tell everybody because I may owe some people money. What was the experience <laughs> like working with him in the great film, Five Easy Pieces? Well, he was a wonderful director and a very patient, kind, interesting man. And I, there I was in this movie with Jack Nicholson. And I knew he was special because I had seen him in that movie with Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda, which was, which his, was really his first breakout film. Right. And, but he wasn't, when I worked with him, he still wasn't the, the star, the huge star, the luminary that he became. But um, I had a couple of scenes with him in the movie, and little did I know that when I was up there way north of Los Angeles in a motel room, you know, memorizing my lines and having to come out in the morning one morning and do this scene with Jack Nicholson, that Bob Rafelson was going to ask me to do a topless. And I am a very modest woman, and I was a very modest young woman and I grew up in a house with just a mom and a sister and um, we did not leave the bedroom and cross <laughs> the three foot wide hall to go into the matchbox size bathroom without having pajamas or a bathroom. None of us ever saw each other naked. 
And he was wanting me to take off my blouse and just wear my jeans and my boots. And it took a lot of talking me into it. And then um, I had to deal with what my mother thought when the film came out. And I was in Portland, Oregon, visiting her, which is where I was born and grew up. And I, she was leaving the house, and she said, I'm going to see your movie. And I said, oh, p- please, Mom, please, please don't. You won't like it. And she said, why won't I like it? I said, because they made me do a, a sexy scene with Jack Nicholson, and the director made me take my blouse off, and I didn't have a bra on, and I promise you, I squeezed up hard against Jack Nicholson, so you couldn't see my breast, but but I think in the end, in the last shot, you might see a piece of one of my breasts, and I said, I'm mortified that he talked me into it, and that I did it, and it's going to embarrass you, and you're going to be mad at me, and you're not going to want to talk to me, please don't go see the movie. She went, and I waited three hours, and when she came home, she opened the front door, she walked right past me to her bedroom and kept the door never said a word to me. Mm. Wow. And we never talked about it, but I knew that I had embarrassed her. I knew she was disappointed in me. And I never did anything like that again. That's that's incredible story. Sally Struthers with us here on downtown. Three or four years ago when you were up here at Agunquit, uh, Valerie Harper was working there as well. And, and you had a, an interesting history, although you'd never worked together before you had tied for the Emmy Award uh, back in the 1970s. And, and when she was here, uh, she took a little turn for the worse health-wise. Have you stayed in touch with Valerie? Yes, and it's it's miraculous uh, that Valerie is with us and kicking and enjoying her life. Uh, when she was diagnosed many years ago with a strange form of cancer, it's not brain cancer. It is cancer of the lining of the brain. I mean, that's kind of a rare cancer. Mm. And every time, and everyone, including her husband, Tony Cacciotti, thought that she was down for the count, you know, scientists have come up with another drug and another way to keep people like Valerie going. And having shared the Emmy Award with her back in 1972 for Best Supporting Actress in a Situation Comedy, I don't believe there's ever been a tie since in the Emmy Awards, and that was 1972. Um, I was honored to be up there at the podium with her. And uh, every time we've seen each other at any event since then, we always glom on to one another like we're long-lost sisters. So there's that relationship. And then when I was told that she would be uh, in nice work if you could get it, and I, I was overjoyed that she was well enough to come do it. And then we were several days into performing it for an audience, and she did take a slight turn for the worse. And had to leave, and you know we all held our breath because, please, dear God, keep Valerie with us on this earth for longer. She, she has more to give and to teach and to love and to, and she's still here. And then it was a, a, a joy for me that that Brad took my word that my friend Brenda Vaccaro could do it, and he flew her in, and she learned the role in two and a half days, and she went on, and she was terrific. We'd be remiss if we didn't uh, bring up at least one question about All in the Family. And I, you've talked about it endlessly through the years. But as you look back on that experience, was there one was there one episode, one performance that you gave that you're particularly proud of? Oh, man. 24 shows a year for eight <laughs> years. That's almost 200 shows. Um. 
I would have to say, if I had to vastly generalize and slightly exaggerate, that the first five seasons of All in the Family, I had about three shows per line, and they were. I'll help you set the table, Ma. Michael, where are you going? And, oh, Daddy, stop it. (laughs) And then the next week, the same three lines, but in a different order. But come the fifth year of the show, they made Mike and Gloria move next door into the Jefferson's old house, and they let Gloria be pregnant. And then I had a lot more to play, and the part became much more fun for me. And of those three years, I would say probably... Uh, the show where I was overdue to give birth and very cranky <laughs> and had a lot of snarky lines to say to my husband. That one was a lot of fun for me. And then the one where I was giving birth and d- dad was in a minstrel show in blackface and he came to the hospital in blackface. <laughs> and my baby, that was pretty funny. And I'd say way back in the early years, maybe the first season when Gloria had her miscarriage and I had a scene with my father who came up to the bedroom Mm. with a teddy bear he had purchased to tell me how sorry he was I lost my baby was probably one of the tenderest scenes I ever got to play. I remember it well. Well, you're working hard while you're here in Maine. Do you get a chance to uh, to enjoy any of the water and the food and everything else that, that goes with Maine when you're here performing in Ogunquay? Oh, Rich, you are asking the wrong person about enjoying water. Oh, really? I am scared poopless of water. I own a home in Hollywood that I'm never in because I'm always on the road doing plays and musicals. But other family members that I adore live in my house. And it came with a swimming pool. I would never have intentionally purchased that with a swimming pool. And uh, I've owned it 21 years, and I've never been in the pool. I don't go in the ocean. I don't go in lakes. I don't go in rivers. I don't go in hot tubs. I, I don't like water. I actually hyperventilate in the shower if water gets in my face when I'm washing my hair. I do love from a great distance looking at the Ogunquit Beach. I do love that when friends and family come to visit me in Ogunquit, they have the beach to go to. But it's not for me. I'm not going to judge you a bit, Sally, because I, I I grew up here. I don't go in the ocean. I don't eat lobster. And I don't even ski here in the winter. So I, I'm on your side in this. Well, you tell me, Rich Kimball, what is it that you enjoy about Maine? Uh, I enjoy looking at all those things. I love the beauty of the ocean and the mountains and the lakes and and the fact that it's not terribly crowded and the people, by and large, are nice. But, you know, I don't need to swim in the ocean or eat the lobster to appreciate it. Now, do you not eat lobster because you've just never really gotten to have a hankering for it? Or are you allergic like Brad Kenny? I'm not allergic. The texture bothers me a little bit. I, I did. Something And it's too much work. That's the other thing. Uh, if I'm going to eat something, I don't need to put in 10 minutes of labor cracking shells oh, to get to you're it. You're talking about a waiter bringing you a whole lobster. Right. Rich, you have to order a lobster tail or go someplace and get yourself a lobster roll. I've never, this There's is... There's no work involved in that. None. I know, I know, I know. But this is true confession time. I've been here 60 years. I mean, that's all. I've never, I've never eaten a lobster roll. How can I even live in this state? How can I be a Mainer? Because you obviously love 
the state. So do I. I mean, if I won the lottery tomorrow, which would probably mean I'd have to buy a ticket, uh, I would buy a, a second home in Maine. Well, we'd love to have you here. We we count you as a Mainer. You've been coming here for so long. By the way, my wife, now she didn't work with you directly. She was doing a, a show with Renee Taylor. This is about a decade ago. She was uh, an assistant stage manager down at a Gunquit Playhouse, but uh, said nothing but good things about you and the way everybody talked about you and how much they loved you coming back to the state every year. What is your wife's name? Her name is Abby. Well, it's Abby Kimball. Now it was Abby Hayward then a decade or so ago hayward kimball yeah well i'm sorry i didn't get to meet her but please give her my love and tell her to come down and visit us i will do that well hopefully we can both get down there and see a show we're so glad to have you on your way back to maine for another performance at a gunquit playhouse again 42nd street opens on june 19th and plays through the 13th of july sally it's great to talk with you thank you so much for visiting with thank us thank you are you going to tell all the folks the phone number for the box office, or do you already have it right there in front of you, Rich? I don't have it right here in front of me, but if you do, you can share it, and if not, I will tell people about it later on. It's so easy to remember. It's area code 207, and then it's 646, and then the next part's even easier, 5511-207-646-5511. I will shout it to the mountaintops throughout the next hour of our program. Oh, thank you, Rich. By the way, there was a TV series, and the lead was a man named Richard Kimball, but you know that, right? I, I have grown up with that. Um, I, that was as a Little League baseball player. My coach insisted on calling me the fugitive today. I go through airports, <laughs> and I have to tell people, my wife is fine, thank you very much, and I'm not looking for a one-armed man. <laughs> I'm sorry to be the 4,000-second <laughs> person to bring this up to you. Not at all. I'm waiting for my check from Harrison Ford. I assume it's coming any day now. Okay. If I see him, I'll tell him. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. Sally, okay. thank you so much. Have a great time this summer, and we hope to talk with you again down the road. Thank you very much. Sally Struthers starring in 42nd Street uh, for the next month or so at a Gunquip Playhouse, 207-646-5511. As Sally said, to get your hands on those tickets. And thanks to Sally Struthers, Alan Zweibel, and thanks to you for joining us on another edition of Downtown the Podcast, brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength.